Romans chapter 13 is what we're going to be looking at this morning. And we're going to be looking at the last half of Romans chapter 13. So that's verses 8 through 14. And so we're going to read this passage, God's word this morning to us. And then we're going to pray and dive into our teaching. This is the word of God. Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 8. There Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And do this, knowing the time, that the hour has come for us to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, when you were on earth, you said that before you departed, before you went to heaven, that you would send your Holy Spirit and you said that he was our helper and that you would send him to teach us all things and to bring to remembrance all that you said to your disciples and we pray we need more of your spirit now. Holy Spirit, would you do just that? Would you do just that this morning? Would you bring to remembrance all the things that Jesus told us? Would you also teach us these things, God? Because if you're not at work, Holy Spirit, in our hearts and in our minds, uh, we know that this is kind of a fruitless thing that we're engaged in here. So would you be our teacher this morning? Would you shine light in the darkness of our ignorance? And would you challenge us this morning as we read from this passage all about what it looks like to love our neighbor as ourselves? And we pray this in the name of Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. So I love reading, and one of my favorite authors is Cormac McCarthy. And if you know anything about Cormac McCarthy, uh, he's a very uh, dark writer. That's probably the best way that you can describe Cormac McCarthy. And he's a prolific author. But in 2007, he wrote a book that won him the Pulitzer Prize, and it was called uh, The Road. And The Road, if you're looking for something to keep you up until 3 a.m. at night, then read The Road cover to cover before you fall asleep. I guarantee that you won't be able to follow, fall asleep after it. Uh, one reviewer, after reading The Road by McCarthy, said that this was, quote, the darkest novel that has ever been written. So... I think it's so dark, in fact, that I, I remember hearing this story that when they were going through the different cover layouts that would uh, be on the front cover of the road, Cormac McCarthy actually said, yeah, none of these covers work. Instead, he just opted for a black cover, just a black cover, front and, black, front and back with his name and then the title on it. And if you know the story, they actually made it into a movie as well. And it's the story of a father and a son and this father and son have survived this cataclysmic, apocalyptic event, probably something on the same level as a nuclear holocaust, which in these days, right, doesn't seem completely out of the realm of possibility. 
And they're walking through this world that's darkened by ash, completely uh, without food or light in the world. And this pair, father and son, have this idea that they're going to walk from the north end of the United States following the highway system all the way down to the south coast. And their hope is that once they get there, they'll find light. They'll find a new world. They'll find a new kind of world that is different from the world on the road, which is just clouded in darkness. And there's this refrain throughout the book of what this dad wants his son to know, even if he were to pass away. He said, son, we carry the fire. We carry the fire. And what he meant by that was in this dark world and the only source of light that there is is fire, we are the people who will live to bring light into the dark places. And so despite being hungry and near starvation in one of these scenes, the father and the son decide in seeing a a man who is close to death, an elderly man who's on his last breath, they decide to give him some of the only spare rations of food that they have left, bringing the fire into a dark place. Another instance comes where the dad actually, in a fit of rage, robs a man at gunpoint for his clothes, not exactly bringing the fire. But then, because he sees his son and is reminded of what he's been telling his son throughout the book, he decides he's going to leave the clothes for this man that he had just robbed, forsaking warmth himself. And it's just, again, this repeated mantra of we carry the fire in a dark world in hopes that once we reach our destination, once we reach the South Coast, we are going to find a new kind of world. And now that's McCarthy's work of fiction, but it really reflects in great detail what Paul has been talking about these last four weeks as we've looked at the book of Romans, because Paul has been telling us as followers of Jesus, we have a hope. We have a hope of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of light, a new kind of world which Jesus promised one day is coming in full. And it is a reality that will come any day now. And meanwhile, as we wait for that kingdom to come in full, Jesus says that we are to live as people who are marked by his kingdom, which is to come. We are to be people who carry the light and carry the fire in a world that's darkened by sin, a world that's darkened by suffering and death and opposition, persecution. Last week, we even saw that we're going to be people who are shedding light even when we have government interference at times and Paul says hey that is part and parcel of what it looks like to live as a Christian to live now in light of the world to come I love how one author put it this is C.S. Lewis I think he kind of wrapped what McCarthy was saying up in a bow he said this world is enemy occupied territory Meaning this world is not how God intended it to be. The created goodness that God made the world to be has been darkened by sin and Satan himself. But Lewis goes on to say, even though this is enemy-occupied territory, Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed in disguise, as it were, and is calling us as his people to take part in a great campaign of sabotage, to overthrow darkness and bring in light. And I think that's an apt summary of 
what Paul's been telling us to do as Christians. We're to carry the fire, carry light into dark places, and undertake the great campaign of sabotage to overthrow darkness in this world as we wait for the world to come. And now, Paul tells us this morning, and he said it three times, you probably noticed it in verses 8 through 10, Paul repeatedly says, the way that this normally takes place for followers of Jesus is by loving our neighbors as ourselves. There is nothing more countercultural, more light-giving and life-giving than that very thing in order to love our neighbors as we ourselves want to be loved. That is how we undertake a great campaign of sabotage. It's by love. Loving like Jesus himself loved. And here's what Paul does. If you're following along and you're looking at Romans uh, chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, Paul reminds us of what this love looks like. And he says, first... This love, loving our neighbors, is a debt. It's a debt. And that's very different, as we're going to see, from how the world views love. But secondly, he tells us that loving our neighbors is also extremely urgent. It's extremely urgent. We'll see that in verses 11 through 14. So Paul reminds us, begins by saying, loving our neighbors is a debt. And you see that beginning in verse 8, where Paul, in the first half of verse 8, writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other. Owe no one anything except to love each other. And now, just as an aside, before we dive into Paul's main point here, many people have seen this verse, Romans 13, verse 8, as kind of an absolute prohibition on taking out any sort of debt or ever taking out a loan or ever incurring debt of any kind. So when it comes to, you know, borrowing money for a home or it comes to borrowing money for a car or, you know, borrowing money for a home renovation or for anything at all, some have understood this passage to teach Christians are never supposed to do that. They're never supposed to incur debt of any kind. A problem kind of occurs with that reading, by the way, because when you look at the scope of the Bible as a whole, you actually notice that taking on debt and borrowing, lending and giving is part and parcel of the Bible. In fact, a lot of times it's just assumed that the people of God will engage in it. But the Bible does set down clear guardrails when it comes to taking on debt or uh, lending or borrowing. And two guardrails kind of stand out. The first one is kind of on the lender's side. The lenders, people who give out money, the Bible sets up a first guardrail and it is a guardrail against what the Bible calls usury. Usury, meaning lending at an unreasonably high interest rate. That's what usury is. It's charging interest that balloons into the double digits and takes advantage of people when they're in their time of need. In other words, what that's doing is it's capitalizing on people in a time of financial stress because they're financially strapped and because people have no other options They take on loans that they otherwise, in their right mind and in the right circumstances, would never take on themselves. So you see that guardrail repeatedly throughout the Bible. If you are giving out money, we are not supposed to be people who engage in usury. That means charging an increasingly high interest rate that people won't be able to pay back. But there's a second guardrail, and this is a guardrail that falls on the side of the person taking out money. And... That's what Paul is actually talking about at the beginning of verse 8. Is he saying, when he says, do not, let any, uh, do not owe anyone anything, he's pay, saying that no debt according to a follower of Jesus should remain outstanding. 
Meaning, as a follower of Jesus, when we take on debt, we should not let any debt remain outstanding by taking on a debt that we cannot reasonably pay back. So I just heard this from a friend recently. They said they were you know, applying for a loan and they were talking to a mortgage broker. And this mortgage broker told them that they qualified for a $700,000 house. And now this person doesn't make a whole lot of money, so they did the calculations in their head and they're no math wizard by any means, but they figured out that that would be close to 42% of their monthly income would just go back to paying their mortgage expense. So that's a pretty unbearable loan that this person would have to take on. And they realized we can't take out this debt because there's no reasonable way that we could actually pay this back. We'll end up defaulting on this loan. And Paul in the same way in verse 8 says, Hey, owe no one anything. What he's doing there is he's merely highlighting this reality in the Bible, that we are not to take on debt that we cannot pay back on time and in full in the right manner, whether that's a student loan, car loan, mortgage payment, or credit card debt. So that's what Paul's saying here. And now that's just an aside, right? Thank you for indulging me there. Because Paul actually has a main point here, and his main point is this. Paul is using this debt language, borrow, lend, Oh, he's doing that to drive home a much more important point. And the point is this, that loving our neighbors is a debt. So verse 8, owe no one anything except to love one another. Paul is saying that our debt to love other people is unlike other debts that we take on financially. So this is some pastor accounting. Okay, I'm not really an accountant, although I can play one on Sunday mornings. When you have a normal debt, right, there's your personal balance sheet and there's what you owe and there's stuff that you own. There is debts, there are debts, and there are assets. And so when you take out a mortgage, for instance, that goes in the debt column, doesn't it? And you go about making payments on your house and over time, you know, you start to pay off that mortgage and a day comes you know, 30 days later, where you paid 30 years later, I did that first service too, <laughs> 30 years later, you pay off that mortgage. That'd be like a Barbie dream house is what you're taking out a mortgage on. 30 years later, once you've paid that principal down, you've paid that in interest down, you can call the bank and say, I owe you nothing anymore. I do not have to make any more payments to you. I will cut off the automatic withdrawals from my bank account. And you can say, my debt is paid in full. I am no longer obligated to pay you. What Paul is saying here is he's saying our debt of love toward our neighbor works differently. When it comes to loving our neighbor, that debt works differently than a normal type of debt. With our neighbor love, there never comes a time when we can say, you know what? I've just loved you enough. You know what? I've given all that I have to you, and you know what? My obligation to love you has completely ceased. I don't owe you love anymore. So in Paul's kind of personal accounting sheet, he's saying, hey, you have a debt to love one another. And you are to continually make payments toward that debt. But the reality is, is no matter how much you pay toward it, the actual debt never decreases. One early church father put it this way. He said, the debt of love should always be paid and always owed. The debt of love should always be paid 
and always should be owed. We are not to let any debt remain outstanding except the debt to love one another. And we're going to see this in more clarity as we get to Paul's second point as well. But what Paul is really doing here is he's rooting God's nature, the nature of God himself. He is saying how God loves us and who God is is how we should love our neighbors as well. That the character of God and the way that God loves us should be reflected in the way that we love our neighbors. And it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Right? God's nature, which is to love his children, God never says to us, right, you know what? Daniel, I've loved you enough. Daniel, I've, I've given and I've given and I've given. I've loved you in full and I no longer owe you love anymore. I've met my obligation to love you and I will not pour out any more love into your life. God never does that, does he? God never, even when we're at moments of heinous sin, even high-handed sin, even presumptuous sin, even when we run away from God with all of our might, oftentimes God continues to pursue us, God continues to love us, and he never puts a limit on it. He never says, I've loved you enough. It's pretty interesting, you know, the way that God usually reminds me of this is when I'm reading with my kids. Now, on Saturdays, we have a house full of four kids, so you can imagine there's a lot of irritability, there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of wanting to pull my hair out of, its head, of my head, and at the end of the day when I'm reading with my two-and-a-half-year-old, sometimes I need a reminder that God still loves me even though I have just been an awful father during the day. And so one of the things we do is we read Sally Lloyd-Jones's Jesus Storybook Bible. This is a resource that we give out to families here, and that book reminds me over and over and over again the nature of God's love for me. In fact, Sally Lloyd-Jones writes this. She says that God's love is a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. That's the nature of God's love. That's why I like the, the subtitle of the Jesus Storybook Bible is Every Story Whispers His Name, talking about Jesus, who's love incarnate. What it's saying is every story of the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, every character in the Bible, every event in the Bible, it's whispering the name of Jesus, who actually came to earth to express God's love even to the point of death. We can say about Jesus, he literally loved us to death by dying on a cross for us. There was no limit to God's love. He died to pay the debt of our sin. And this is super countercultural. This call that Paul is telling us to treat love as a debt, think about what Paul's saying there. He's saying love is an obligation. Love is something that is owed our neighbors. Even in marriages in our culture, right, kind of the supreme example of what love should be, we very rarely view our love toward our spouses as something that is owed or a debt to them, right? Instead, we kind of think of love, I would say, in our culture as contractual. It's contractual. It's an approach of love that says, hey, I'll love you insofar as you continue to meet my desires. I will love you up until our relationship no longer suits my happiness. But as soon as my desires are not met, as soon as my happiness is not fulfilled, then I have no obligation, I have no duty to love you. In fact, we can call it quits, we can go our separate ways. 
Sociologists actually have a term for this. They've noticed this phenomenon in the way that we view love. They call it commodification. We have turned love into a commodity, much like a product that we would buy at the store. So if another person is meeting our particular needs, we'll keep them around and love them in return. But when our spouse or neighbors or family members or friends cease to profit us, when the relationship appears to require more love and affirmation on our end, then we're willing to cut our losses, drop the relationship. And Paul reminds us here, that is far and away different from how the Bible views love. Love, according to the Bible, as those who carry the fire, who have the spirit of Jesus in them, who want to bring light into the world, we are to be people who view love as a debt as a reflection of the nature of God himself, who loves us with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's how we should love our neighbors. And so the question that follows that is, how do we love that way? What would that actually look like for us? And surprisingly, you probably noticed this in verses 8 through 10, what Paul does is he puts two things together that we normally wouldn't associate with one another. He says, to love our neighbors, what we do is we live out God's law in relationship to them. In order to love our neighbors, we have to be guided by God's Ten Commandments. So look again at verse 8. Paul there says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, You shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And when I usually do sermon prep, by the way, what I like to do is I like to walk around the office here and I'll knock on Aaron's door, I'll knock on Tim's door, I'll knock on any door of anybody that will let me in and come and talk to them. And what I like to do is I like to bounce ideas off of the people who are in the office. And I brought people this idea this week, wondering, hey, this is what I think Paul is saying. This is what everything indicates that Paul is saying. What does that make you think about? And over and over and over again, usually what people said was, well, that doesn't really sound like love at all. The idea of loving somebody and following God's law, those don't seem to go together. How is that loving another person? And so I had to think about that. And what I realized is that the way we view love in our culture is flip-flopped. Love in our culture, right, is expressed primarily as a feeling, primarily as an emotion. And That's why we say things like, I fell in love, or I was carried away by love, or I got swept up in love. Love is something passive. We are passive, and love is something that is done to us. Love is something that wells up inside of us. And if we are feeling love, then we act on it. If we're feeling like we love our spouse, then we'll go and buy them a gift. If we're feeling like we love our friends, we'll take them out to the movies. If we feel like we love our wives, we'll remember it's Valentine's Day five minutes before we're supposed to go home and go to King Supers and buy a dozen roses before we go home. That was somebody else, by the way. I was having lunch with somebody. They told me they did that. Um, But that's our idea of love, right? Love is primarily a feeling. And if we feel it strong enough, then it'll uh, work out in actions. Paul says here that order is completely upside down. What the Bible says is that love is primarily, 
expressed through actions. It's primarily guided by God's Ten Commandments in relationship with our neighbors, and the feeling of love is secondary. I was watching uh, the Friends reunion last night on HBO Max. I I feel compelled every time I say I watch Friends to say I like Seinfeld more, by the way, which I do. Who likes Seinfeld more? Give yourself a round of applause. Good for you. But what I noticed in Friends, you really see this picture, this snapshot of two divergent philosophies of love conflicting with one another. So there's the main character, Ross, and Ross is in the first season on thin ice with his wife. And you hear Ross say things like, hey, I I want to try and make this relationship work. I want to try and keep our marriage together. I want to uphold our vows that we committed to one another. But his soon-to-be ex-wife instead says things like, well, I just don't feel that way about you anymore. Or, I just don't love you anymore. The spark and the fire in our relationship is lost. I wish I could love you, but I just can't. And now, nobody watching Friends says, don't you see these two divergent philosophies of love coming together in one sitcom in the 1990s? Nobody says that, except for me. That's what I was thinking. But that's what's going on. And in the end, if you're familiar with Friends, you know which philosophy wins out. You know which philosophy takes the day. The philosophy that says love is a passive feeling that happens to us ultimately takes the day. Ross ends up divorced for the first time, and they go their separate ways. And the reason Paul is putting these two things together, law and love, and the reason that that sounds so strange to us is because we have flip-flopped the order in our culture. But Paul says, no, love is primarily about actions. And once again, what Paul is doing here is he's just saying, this love that we express for other people is just a reflection of the character of God, how God loves us. So look again at verse 9, where Paul starts to go through some of these commandments. Paul says, okay, do you have a spouse then reflect the nature of God. God is a loving and faithful God, a God who keeps his promises and does not abandon us in darkness. Therefore, Paul says, do not commit adultery. Instead, be faithful to your spouse. Love your spouse. Commit yourself to your spouse as God has committed himself to you. And then Paul says, do you want to love your neighbor? Then reflect God's nature, and God is a God of life and light. He's our creator and sustainer. So therefore, he says, do not murder. Do not take the life of another person. Instead, seek their health. Preserve their life. Paul finishes with two other commandments. He says, do not steal or covet from your neighbor. And why? Because God is a loving and generous God who gives us everything that we need. And in doing all these things, we simply reflect the loving nature of God to our neighbors. And Paul whittles all these down and he says, if we do these things, then this can be summed up in a word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. As those who are called by Jesus, followers of Jesus, to carry his light into the world, taking part in his great campaign of sabotage, what more countercultural thing can we do than be guided by the law of God, which is an expression of his love for people like us? And, you know, the first thing that Paul says here is important, but he really roots this in 
why we're supposed to do it in verses 11 through 14, because he says there, loving our neighbors is urgent. It's urgent. And the reason Paul says that it's urgent is he says, because the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light, and the kingdom of heaven, those things have already broken in, and they will be here in full soon. That's why Paul says, and do this, verse 11, and do this, knowing the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, and the day is at hand. So notice what Paul's saying here. He's saying the darkness, he, that's how he describes this world. He describes it as the night, right, full of sin, death, and evil. He says that the night is far gone, and the kingdom of heaven, God's light, is already at hand. Paul ima- imagines the kingdom of heaven like a sunrise, right, that You look out over the horizon at the beginning of the day and you see streams of light coming up. Paul says, that is like the kingdom of God. It is a sun on a horizon. And just as it is a sure fact that the sun will rise every morning, so too the kingdom of God is coming and it is in full. And we are closer to that day now than when we first believed. And when we look at our culture, right, that, that doesn't seem like that's the case. It actually looks like we're going in the opposite direction, doesn't it? That light is not what is coming and light is not what's before us. But instead, we sometimes look to the horizon and think, wow, this is utter darkness. There can't be any good coming now. God's kingdom can't be breaking in. David Brooks, in fact, he's a writer in the New York Times. He recently wrote an article entitled The Dark Century. And he recounts how in the 1990s, when he first started uh, reporting as a journalist, he said the 21st century was a wake-up call because it seemed to be so different from the 90s. He wrote, in the early 1990s, I was a roving correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, and I was based in Europe. Some years it felt as if all I did was cover good news. The end of the Soviet Union, Ukrainians voting for independence, German reunification, The spread of democracy across Eastern Europe. Mandela was coming out of prison and the end of apartheid. The Oslo peace process that seemed to bring stability to the Middle East. He says, I obsess about those years now. I obsess about them because the good times did not last. History, it seems, is reverting toward barbarism. We have an authoritarian strongman in Russia invading his neighbor. An increasingly authoritarian China waging genocide on its people and threatening Taiwan. Cyber attacks undermining the world order, democracy in retreat worldwide, thuggish populists across the West undermining nations from within. And he says, what happened? Why? Why were the hopes of the 1990s not realized? What is the key factor that's made the 21st century so dark, regressive, and dangerous? We feel that way, don't we? When... We think about the world and the state that it's in. It's hard to be optimistic. It's hard to believe that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and darkness is actually in retreat. That's why Paul gives us these clear instructions here. He says, hey, wake up from your sleep. Wake up from your sleep. Do not live as if the darkness is going to be permanent, but Love your neighbor as if the kingdom of heaven is at hand because, in fact, that day is near. The sun of righteousness has broken over the horizon and will one day come in full. Wake up and live accordingly. When I went on my first vacation when I was a kid, I was about 11 years old. My family and I, we went to Mexico. 
and our flight didn't take off until like 10 in the morning, but I woke up at 3 a.m. And I was so excited because I know the day is coming and I'm going to be in Mexico. So I started packing my bags at 3 a.m. I started counting my money, which I had saved up because I wanted to buy a bunch of cheap bracelets and knock off backpacks, which had the Denver Broncos logo stitch into them on the beaches of Mexico. And so I started living accordingly as if the day was at hand. And think about this. If we lived as if that, that, that was a reality, that the kingdom of heaven was near, let me ask, what would you do in response in relationship to your neighbor? Maybe another way to put this, you might not invest in cryptocurrencies. I do, right? And it's a painful thing. But I recently invest, invested in Dogecoin. And Dogecoin is at 12 and a half cents a share. Now, if you know, and if you knew, one week from now, Dogecoin was going to be at $25 a share, and you knew for certain that that was the case, what would you do? You'd go and invest everything that you own in Dogecoin, wouldn't you? You'd say, hey, forget that diversifying my portfolio stuff. I'm going to go put everything in Dogecoin. By the way, you can do that, and that will benefit me, so go ahead and do that. But that's what you would do. You put all your resources there. And in the same way, Jesus says, as followers of me, the kingdom of heaven has broken over the horizon. Therefore, loving our neighbors is not just something that we do. It's something that we do urgently, knowing that we want to carry the fire into this dark world, into this dark century. Now, I don't usually like to share stories like this, but... Um, you know, my wife and I, when we moved to Nashville, we're, we're terrible at this, by the way. I'll just confess, I'm terrible at loving my neighbors in this way, oftentimes to my shame. But, you know, when we went to Nashville, we moved to Nashville when uh, we were really young, newly married. We moved in across the street from this man named Buster. And now, Buster was the complete opposite of a person that we would just normally hang out with on a normal basis. He was our neighbor. And forming a relationship with them was extremely difficult. In fact, uh, at times we would, you know, drive past his house and we'd dip into our driveway and then we'd try and sneak into the back of our house. But Buster was a very persistent neighbor. And if you know people in the South, they'll be friendly to you whether or not you want them to be friendly or not. So Buster would yell out across the street, hey, come on over here. And so we'd head over to Buster's house and we'd head into his house and you know we didn't really know how to relate to Buster he was somebody who walked around with his shirt off a lot of the time and you know he would smoke a lot of cigarettes just not things that we were completely used to but we tried over and over to get to know Buster and to love Buster and there came a day when Buster fell down and he had to get brought to the hospital and so my wife and I kind of looked at each other and we said, well, what, what should we do? We decided to visit Buster in the hospital with our two kids at the time, Eli and Lainey, and we brought a hymnal. We brought just a, a book of, of songs, Christian songs. And we went to, his, uh, went to his hotel room and we started singing songs to Buster. And then the thought occurred to us, why don't we read something out of the Bible? So we read, uh, we read from Jesus from his Sermon on the Mount. And we read these words, and almost as we were saying them, we realized just the implications of them. Jesus there said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, 
so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. And now, I don't know if Buster became a Christian. I don't know if Buster started following Jesus because we tried to, to love him. He loved us better than we loved him most of the time. But what we saw is after Buster passed away, and he passed away shortly after that time when he went into the hospital, his brother, whose name was George, invited us to do his funeral. And he said, nothing would mean more to us than if you came over to our house and prayed with us and officiated his funeral. And I don't know, again, whether or not Buster became a Christian. I don't know what happened, but all I know is that when I look back at that time, I can't think of a better example in my life personally when I underwent the great campaign of sabotage into this world. When I wanted to bring light into somebody's life and throw off darkness in this world just by simply loving the person who was next to me. Now, I don't, again, I don't do that very often. Um, you can record that or you can count instances like that on one hand of how many times that I've done that. But I do know when we do love our neighbors as Jesus is telling us here, really wonderful things can happen. And what Paul says to close this out, he says, verse 12, given all of these things, Paul says, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Anybody notice that when you go to a wedding and you put on a suit or you put on a nice dress, you act differently than you would otherwise wearing jeans and a hoodie. Paul encourages us here. He says, hey, this is urgent. Loving our neighbors as ourselves, as followers of Jesus, in order to do this, we need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, put on his armor of light, and cast off the dark deeds of this world. Cast off darkness of this world. With This world is marked by self, selfishness, and self-indulgence. And those are the marks of selfishness and darkness in verse 13, aren't they? What is sexual immorality and sensuality other than a project of gratifying my sexual desires? What is quarreling and jealousy other than evidence of the self having to be right in relationship to others? The self taking priority over everyone else. Paul says, hey, those are works of darkness. Cast off works of darkness and walk as if it is the daytime. Put on Jesus, his armor of light, and join in his great campaign of sacrifice, a sacrificial love for our neighbors, and we'll see the kingdom of darkness be sabotaged. And one of the ways Jesus reminds us not only to just hear this, but also so that we can taste it and see it and we can actually visualize it. Jesus actually on the night he was betrayed when he was meeting with his disciples and he said that this bread was his body given for us. And he said that this cup was the new covenant in his blood shed for the remission of our sins. What Jesus said is, when we take this meal, what we're doing is we're proclaiming Jesus' death for us as we wait for his kingdom to come in full. And Jesus says, when he returns, he'll bring a feast. And what we hope for today will be a reality when he comes again. And so this meal is simply a foretaste of that great day to come when Jesus will be magnified, 
when darkness will be eradicated and when light will fill this world and we will perfectly love our neighbor as ourselves. But Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, when he was around his followers, his friends, his disciples, he took the bread and he broke it. And he gave it to each of his disciples. He said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in like manner, after they had finished eating, Jesus took the cup. And Jesus said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the remission of all your sins. And he told his followers that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes again to bring his kingdom in full. And now if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, Jesus invites you, come, eat, feast. If you realize you need the death of Jesus to forgive you of your sins, and in order to follow in his life of love, you need to be clothed in him and he needs to empower you to do it, then this meal's for you. Come, take and eat. The Bible says that this actually satisfies and strengthens our souls to do that. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then I'd invite you to come and speak with one of our, uh, one of our elders or helpers who are gonna be here serving communion. And you can meet with them after the service. You can talk about what you're thinking about Jesus. But if you're not in the place of saying, hey, I embrace Jesus as my savior and my king, then I have an invitation to say, hey, sit back and have that conversation first. Place your faith in Jesus and then come to this table. Now, as we take communion, just a little reminder here, we'll pull up uh, on the screen how we're supposed to do this. No matter what section you're in, you're gonna release to the middle row that's closest to you. You come down that row, there's gonna be an elder here. They'll break off a piece of bread for you, hand it to you. And then you can grab wine or juice. Wine is in the trays, juice is on the table. And you can take that, head back to your seat on the opposite row from which you came, sit down and then we'll take together. But with that, I'd like to invite our ushers forward and uh, elders forward. And as they do that, let's pray for our meal. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you sent Jesus, your only son to this word world to live a life of perfect love, the life that we could not live, to die the death that we deserve, to bring the kingdom of light to bear on this world. And we pray, God, that as we feast on this meal, that you would take this bread and that you would set it apart for an extraordinary purpose, to feed our souls and to nourish us so that we might live as your children, we might live as if your kingdom was in full now and we might love our neighbors as ourselves, all in recognition that we need Jesus, our Savior, to work that in us. We pray this all in his name. Amen.